Let us pray. Almighty and most gracious Father, draw near and plant your word deep within our hearts and draw us up to yourself that we might know you more deeply. And in knowing you more deeply, enable us to always come to you and be changed and be transformed and be renewed in heart, will, and mind. That we might more fully and completely love and serve you always through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, I have to say that yesterday many persistent prayers were answered. Tennessee finally beat Alabama after 16 years of constantly losing to them in football. I don't keep up with these things very much, but I do like to see the team that I grew up watching win a game occasionally, and apparently they're doing good this season. But I know from my own experience that there have been many, many faithful Vols fans praying for that win for many years, and so they were very happy last night. I think they tore down the goalpost after the game and their celebration. All joking aside, though, our text today just explicitly make the point that we are to be persistent in prayer. I have to appreciate St. Luke this day when he just tells me what my sermon is. He says, and Jesus told a parable to the effect that they, the disciples, ought always to pray and not lose heart. Just right there at the front. You should always pray. You should never lose heart. And then Jesus tells a parable. But it's easy to get caught up in the parable and to get some ideas out of it, but to miss the bigger picture that's coming from this parable of what Jesus is getting across to us. Yes, we are called to be persistent in prayer, but why should we be persistent? How shall we be persistent? What is it that we are to do? in our persistence. All of that comes together through all of our Scriptures today, especially with this Gospel lesson, with our psalm, and with our story from Genesis 32. They all come together to remind us about the nature of prayer, but to remind us about something much deeper than the nature of prayer, but the nature of who we are praying to. That we aren't just praying to some imaginary being up in the sky, but we are praying to the one true God. We are praying to the one who has created all things. And thus, because we pray to the one who created all things, the one who is drawn near to us in Jesus Christ, we can be persistent in our prayers. We don't have to lose heart because He is the one who has done all things for us in Jesus. And so what is the what of our persistence in prayer? What does Jesus tell us today? Well, right there beginning in verse 1, Luke gives us a clue. Always pray, never lose heart. And then Jesus tells us the parable. That there was a certain city, and there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. Right here at the very beginning of the what of how The what of persistent prayer is that there is a judge who doesn't fear God and has no respect for man. This judge did not fear God. He had no reverential respect, no reverential fear toward God. But even more than that, 
Not only does he have no reverence toward God, but he has no fearful terror of God. He has no feelings toward God whatsoever. That particular word for fear is that word that we draw phobo from whenever we think of phobias, when we're just irrationally fearful against something. And so there is a sense there of which of him not having any kind of reverence, but also he just is not scared of God. He sees himself on equal terms with God. In fact, he may even see himself as above God since he has no fear whatsoever toward the one who has created him. And so this judge is his own man. He does whatever is pleasing to himself because he has no fear or worry about God or his law. Even though it is God's very law that he is to adjudicate. It is God's very law that he uses to make his judgments and to make his pronouncements. But he doesn't care about God. He doesn't care about his law. And of course, flowing directly out of that lack of fear for God is he has no respect for man. He doesn't care about man. He just does as he, as he pleases. No feelings of regret. No shame here. He's a man that you could look at and see him do something bad and wicked and be like, shame on you, and it wouldn't affect him. He'd be like, whatever. I'm going to do what I want to do. He has no concept of honor or shame, of doing the right thing over against a good thing. You can never convince him to do the right thing because he feels no shame. He has no guilt. He has no remorse in anything that he would do or that he might do. And so you have the judge, a wicked, a wicked, wicked man who has no fear, no terror, no reverence whatsoever for God. He has no respect for man. He feels no shame at his actions. He does as he pleases. And then there's the widow. The widow, a woman who has virtually no rights in this culture, who has no rights of inheritance unless it's just simply explicitly given to her. She has no one with her. She has no uncles, no brothers, no sons, no husband because she's a widow. She has no husband. But it seems that she has no other family with her. And so there's no one to take up her case. There's no one to come to the judge on her account to be her advocate before this judge. For apparently something has happened in her life and she needs justice against her adversary. She needs justice, but the judge refuses to hear her. He doesn't care. He steps aside and just lets her be, throws her out of the proceedings and just says, go away, old woman, I don't want to hear your case. After all, he's a corrupt judge. He's a wicked judge. He's probably maybe getting bribes from others. And he sees this little old widow who has no money, who has no wealth. She can't give him anything. She can't bribe him. She can't do anything for him. And so he just ignores her, shuffles her away, and just keeps on going about his business. But this is something that I think is unique for us to know about this cultural context, this moment for this widow. That because she has no one to defend her, she has a certain freedom to go and lodge complaints. In a way, she can be fearless before this judge because she knows the rules of the culture. She knows how the culture is shaped, that she can go before this man and just berate him up and down for refusing to give justice. That she can tear him apart. She can yell at him all day and all night. And just keep coming to him and he can't touch her. He can't throw her out. He can't physically harm her. He can't sick the bailiffs on her. He can't do anything to her. 
except let her yell at him and he can do his best to ignore her because culturally he can't touch a woman. He is not allowed to do anything physical to her. So I was studying up on this passage. I was listening to some videos from Kenneth Bailey and he told a story about this woman that he met in Beirut whose son disappeared during the Civil War. And so what did she do? She went around to all the militias in Beirut and was just yelling at the men in charge, where is my son? Give me my son. We're Jews here and he shouldn't be with you. Or we're Palestinians and he shouldn't be with you. Why do you have my son in your militia? Just yelling at him at the top of her lungs and went to every leader. And Dr. Bailey asked her, he's like, well, what would have happened if your husband did that? She's like, oh, he would have been shot on the spot. The men in these militias would have just killed the man. But the cultural honor, shame that comes with being a woman in that case, they couldn't harm her. They couldn't do anything to her while she is yelling at them because she had a case against them for them letting her son join the militias. It's a modern day example of what's happening in this case. This woman is yelling at this judge wanting justice and he refuses. He just ignores her as best he can. But then something changes. There in verse 4, Jesus goes on to say, For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, A very conscientious wicked man he is, though I neither fear God nor respect man. Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, she keeps berating me, she keeps coming to me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. The judge changes. The judge gives to her what she needs. He gives her her rights. He makes a judgment in her case finally after her coming to him and bothering him and beating him down with her continual coming, her yelling at him, fearlessly coming and boldly coming before him. He finally shifts and makes judgment. And Jesus says, Hear what that unrighteous judge says. You see, he finally gives in and gives justice because the woman won't quit coming to him. And he tells us, And will not God give justice to his elect, to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. See, the big idea in this parable is not about the woman's persistence, but about how different this judge is from God, and yet the judge will still give in. Which means, if the judge is wicked and will still give justice, how much more justice will we receive from God who is good, who is merciful, who is compassionate, who is love and justice? How much more will He act when we are persistent, when we come? Because it is who He is to come to His people. Those who cry to Him day and night, will He long delay? Another aspect that I drew from Dr. Bailey on this was that long delay over them has a sense that he told a story of, imagine a city full of just riotous people that just make the king mad all the time. And he sets up his soldiers three days journey from that city so that when they make him mad, when he gets frustrated with their behavior, he calls out the soldiers to go, but it takes him three days to get there. And in that time, the king has time to cool down. And to turn his soldiers back. To turn back his righteous anger at their misbehavior. Will he long delay over them? He has long suffering for us and comes to be with us. He turns his wrath away in Jesus. And hears our prayers no matter what they are. 
He listens and He receives us. And Jesus says, He will give justice to us speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? With that verse and with what comes in chapter, at the end of chapter 17, one of these moments of something I've been reminded of for weeks on end, the chapters and the verse numbers aren't part of the text. When Luke was writing this, he was writing and he just kept going. And so, it's sometimes important to look back at the previous verses and a couple of the verses to come to kind of get a better picture of the context. And one of the things that jumps out is Jesus had just finished teaching about the end of days. He had just finished speaking about the day of the Lord. And then He tells a parable about persistence, about suffering, about not losing heart, waiting for God to answer. And then He says, when the Son of Man comes, He brings it back to that. When the day of the Lord comes... Will he find this kind of faith? Will he find faith on the earth? This persistent faith that will look and trust this God who has said he will answer. Who has said he will return. And that's a great deal of context for us to realize that when Jesus says he will give justice to them speedily, it doesn't necessarily mean he will answer immediately to us. But when that day of coming, when that day of reckoning is here, everything will be changed. All of our prayers will be properly answered. God will renew all things for our sake. But He is still hearing us. He is listening and He is working for our good day and night as we cry out to Him. And why is it that we would cry out to Him day and night? Why is it that we would cry out to Him continually, drawing up to Him? It's because of what we learn in Psalm 121 this day about Him. We have the why of coming in persistent prayer. And the psalmist says, I will lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. The psalmist is traveling up to Jerusalem. As he's traveling, he looks up to all the mountaintops around him. And he asks, where is my help coming from? Does it come out of these hills? Does it come out of these mountains? No, it comes from Yahweh who made heaven and earth. My help comes from the one who created these hills and these mountains around me, these places that other people go to worship other gods, where there are thieves, where there are bandits, where there's all kinds of wickedness in these mountains that abide around these mountains. My help doesn't come from the mountains themselves. My help comes from the God who made those mountains, who made all things. My help always comes from the Lord. And in light of that, Our help coming from the Creator of heaven and earth, the psalmist reminds us that He will not let your foot be moved. He will not let, He who keeps you will not slumber. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Our Lord is one who does not sleep. He does not slumber. He doesn't nod off when we're praying, but He is ever listening to us, always ready to hear, always ready to act. Our God is ready and able to hear us at all times. Because He never sleeps and so we can cry out day and night. He keeps us. He is the one who protects us, who guards us, who preserves us from all harm. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. We are protected. We are guarded. He is the one who keeps our soul. He preserves us. That is why we can be persistent in our prayer. 
He is the creator of all things, heaven and earth, all the things that could afflict us. He is in control of because he created the reality in which we all live. He created this world. He created this universe. He created the cosmos. He is greater than whatever evil can be done to us. He is greater than any kind of injustice that can be done. And in the end, He will make all injustice right. He will judge all injustice. He will undo all the unrighteous deeds that have been done. And He will bring true healing to us. He will bring true transformation to us. And in that, that's why we have the how of persistent prayer. Isn't it fun when I do this? We had the what? Jesus explaining a parable to us about a wicked judge and how much greater God is than that judge. The why of who this God is that we come to that never sleeps, that never slumbers, and that keeps and preserves us. But how do we do this? We wrestle. We strive. We fight with God. That's what we see in Genesis 32 with Jacob wrestling with God himself. Though Jacob doesn't realize he's wrestling with God. Not at first, anyway. Jacob is returning to the land after 20 years of being away. He is afraid of his brother Esau, whom he had greatly wronged. He had stolen the birthright from him. He had stolen the paternal blessings from him and left him with but scraps and crumbs. And when he did that, he fled. His mom sent him away to her brother over in another land. And he spent 20 years there. Jacob isn't a great name for someone, by the way. In Hebrew, Jacob means the usurper, the cheater. Jacob was given the name cheater, usurper, because he grabbed his brother's hill as he was coming out, as he was being born with his twin brother. He grabbed hold of Esau's hill. And held on to it. Which told them that he was in some way going to be a fighter even though he didn't seem like one. That he was going to be a conniver. One who would overthrow everything to get his way. But finally, after all these years, he has been forced to return to his land. He's burned his bridges with Laban, his uncle. Jacob, in a lot of ways, had gotten his just desserts from Laban. As Jacob had cheated his own brother, Laban cheated him over and over and over and accused him of all kinds of things. And so finally Jacob's like, we're leaving. And he just packs up and leaves. And Laban chases him down and finally lets him go. But here Jacob is coming back into the land. And he's fearful because Esau is coming with 400 men. He's coming with a small army against Jacob. At least that's what Jacob thinks. And so he divides up all of his belongings and sends them at different times. And then he sends his wives, his other wives. He has four wives, but the text refers to his two proper wives and then his two female servants that he has children with and then his 11 children. And he sends them on across the Jabbok. And after they go, Jacob is alone. He is alone in the late evening. And the text tells us, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Someone just suddenly springs up upon Jacob in the night And what I love about this is purely from Jacob's perspective. Even though Moses is writing this through the inspiration of the Spirit, it's not revealed immediately who this is. It just says a man sprung upon him and started wrestling him until daybreak. And when the man saw that he couldn't prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. 
and his hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. All night long, Jacob is wrestling, and all he can think of is like, he, this man I'm wrestling with, has not prevailed over me, so I have a chance to win. I can overpower this man. But then in the midst of that, this human wrestler that is over and against Jacob does something that no wrestler could ever possibly do. No human wrestler could just simply touch someone's hip socket and throw it out of joint. And that is what happens to Jacob in the midst of this wrestling match. His hip is thrown out of socket, and I think at that moment Jacob has to begin realizing this is not a man I'm wrestling with. This is someone greater than a man. But yet he keeps wrestling, he keeps clinging, he keeps holding on, trying to overpower him despite the excruciating pain he is in from his hip being broken in that moment. Thrown out of socket and he just keeps wrestling. Our wrestling in this moment is not something that changes God. Jacob keeps wrestling in the hopes that he will truly overpower this man, realizing he is more than a man. But Jacob keeps fighting, but it's not the man he is wrestling against that is being changed. True from our limited perspective, it does seem like God changes his mind. But the reality is God brings us to where he wants us to be. And that's what he does when he knocks Jacob's hip out of socket. He has brought Jacob to a breaking point. He let Jacob strive with him and he lets us strive with him and with his will over and over until we get worn down. Even when our strength somehow keeps going, we are worn down by this wrestling with God. And we will fight and fight and fight through our prayers. And in that, wrestling with God so diligently, so persistently, we discover something taking place deep inside when we are utterly honest with ourselves. That wrestling with God in prayer, that persistence that Jacob was putting forward, that we put forward, doesn't change God, it changes us. Down to the very core of our being, we get changed. We get altered from who we once were into the person that God wants us to be, that He desires us to be. And you think, well, how can that be? How can my persistent prayers change me? Well, how can they not? When you draw near into the presence of God continually, drawing up to God, coming before Him, and continually praying through prayer, being in His presence with our conflicting prayers and striving against Him, but desiring to be in that presence, desiring to be before Him and offer these prayers no matter how conflicting or how striving they are, His very presence will change you. He will cause a transformation in your very being, in our very person. Putting us in God's presence transforms us and renovates us through and through. Because God has promised to do that as we draw near. As we draw near. And that's what happens to Jacob. All of God's long-term work is occurring in this moment to Jacob. All of it's coming to fruition as he breaks and knocks Jacob's hip out of socket. And Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. He strives even in this pain. He hangs on to God. He wants a blessing in the midst of the pain. He sees who he is finally. Do you see who God is in all of this? Our parable says we shouldn't lose heart. And why shouldn't we lose heart? Because it is God Himself that we are wrestling with. The God who is justice, who is love, who is goodness, is the one we wrestle with in our prayers. And so we shouldn't lose heart because He is all that we need.
He is the one true good. The one true greatness of all reality. For He is above all of reality. Because if that wicked and unjust judge can give justice, how much more justice can we receive from the God of all creation? The God of all redemption. Will He not accomplish all that we need as we draw near to Him? And yes, He will. God never sleeps. He never slumbers. He is our keeper who preserves us. And He gives us everything through Jesus who has died for us. Who poured out His blood on our behalf to remove everything that stands between us and the Father. He invites us into His kindness, into His mercies, into His compassion. He invites us always into His presence by His steadfast love. And we respond with continual prayer and wrestling. And because God is who He is, because He can take anything that we throw at Him, we can be like that widow in this sense of constantly coming to Him and yelling and fighting and being upset and mad because it is God who can take it. We can put before God anything that comes to our minds as we fight and wrestle to understand what is happening around us and in us and by us and to us. And doing that, drawing near to God's presence with honesty, drawing near with faith, drawing near in this persistent way to this one who will always hear us, will change us and transform us. And so we must persist in that regard because we want to be transformed. And the place our transformation occurs is in the very presence of this holy God who wants to hear us, who wants to bless us, who when we cry out in the midst of our pain, give me a blessing, O God, and cry out, how long before you finally give me an answer, God? He looks down and says, you are mine and I will act. You are mine and I will give you the blessing of a new name in Jesus Christ. You are mine and I will bless you always and give you all that you need. Draw near and always follow me. Draw near to the one who promises you all salvation, who promises you the fullness of redemption, who promises you the fullness of justice, who promises you the fullness of transformation in Jesus Christ Himself. And that this man, Jesus, will come back and enact all these things. And so don't lose heart. For I am patient, God says. For I am long-suffering. And I will not delay forever. But keep drawing near and know my presence and the transformation that it brings to you. That you would always be the one who is my chosen one. And you will know my chosenness by drawing near always. Because I will never sleep, I will never slumber, God says. But I will keep you with myself. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.